So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man, and here's what we've got for you today. They can tell what that person is feeling. It's just that they don't know who the person is that's doing the feeling. What's life like living with facial blindness? A world-class specialist reveals how our brains can let us down. Plus... It makes my heart sink when people are shamed and uh, lose their jobs because they dare to have a sex life. Exposing yourself on the web for a vicarious thrill appeals to many people. But what about the consequences? Alex Fox considers if there's a safer way. Plus, we have our record of the week and Ollie Peart does the downward dog. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, like the beginning of every good magazine, it is time for your letters. Although, I must say, I was reading T3 the other day, and they put the letters about two-thirds of the way through. But uh, the exception that proves the rule. Uh, Hello to manfan Adam, who tweeted us this week, at The Modern Man, to say, Ollie, are you going to try and get an interview with Matthew Hedges? Yeah, he's the British guy who's now been released from his life sentence in Dubai uh, for supposedly spying. It is a good shout, Adam. Very much up my street, that story. But uh, you'll have noticed it's not our M.O., to cover the same stories as everyone else. What we like to do on this show is wait about 18 to 24 months until everyone's forgotten about it and then get in touch. Uh, So, Matthew, if you're listening, let's talk in 2021. Hello as well to Amy, who says, is there a Spotify playlist where I can find all your songs of the week? They're always great, but I listen in the car and then I forget what they are when I could actually write the names down. Yes, Amy, there is. Just check out the music page on our website. There's a Spotify playlist there of every song we've ever played on the show, or at least the ones that are available on Spotify anyway. So happy listening. Don't crash the car. Uh, Speaking of songs... I must concede that our mailbag this week tells me defiantly that you all very much enjoyed your first play of Ollie Peart's The Sounds of Christmas, definitely co-written by him. Uh, Devon's Daddy got in touch to say, Bloody hell, that Christmas song is excellent, five exclamation marks, really, truly, honestly, that is great, all caps. Uh, Paul said, Crikey, you've created a Christmas song I would actually buy, flabbergasted. And Alicia says, I'm obsessed This is going to make UK number one. I bet we can get worldwide two. Hashtag pod aid. Well, uh, that is three sales. So possibly enough to crack the Christmas top 100 already. Uh, Keep listening to the show, everybody. 
Each week, we will follow the progress of Ollie's Christmas Challenge. Um, Before we get any further this week, though, my open-armed thanks to our sponsors, Beer52.com. They are the UK's number one beer club. They have the skills and determination to deliver world-class monthly selections of delicious craft beer directly to your very door. Uh, My friend Ben came over for dinner the other night, and I was able to offer him, as a drink, not the usual selection of fizzy, lagery pap, that I used to keep in the fridge. But instead, the choices were uh, Aoraki, which is a fruity, hoppy bitter from New Zealand, a chocolate and coffee malt from Berkshire, or Rathhouse Brow Tannenzapfel. I can't tell you what that is because the entire bottle is written in German. But that's exotic, right? So if you want to pimp up your beer fridge, why not start right now by claiming a free box of beer? Eight beers, a snack and a magazine worth £24 Totally free to you, just for listening to this show. All you have to do is pay the two ninety five postage and packing. It is a trial case, so if you don't want to join Beer 52 afterwards, you just cancel. But it is genuinely eight beers for free. British listeners, get your free case now at beer52.com slash man. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash M-A-N-N. And thanks again to them. Right, in this episode you will learn exactly how many faces you can store in your mind, you'll learn the difference between prosopagnosia and object agnosia, and you'll learn what fruity photo got even Alex Fox to blush. Let's go. Time to test out trends with Dorset's answer to Ollie Mann. It's the Zeitgeist with Ollie Pitt. Do you reckon people are like, or oh, where's our version of Ollie Mann? <laughs> No. They want a regional opt-out. They just want their very own Ollie Peer. And you know what? They have one. Now, obviously, everyone is on the edge of their seats wondering what is happening with your quest to become Christmas number one. Mm-hmm. We will get on to that. Yeah. Uh, but first, I feel we owe it to man fan Kevin to update him on the results of his challenge, uh, which was for you to try out all the various new fitness apps on the market. Yeah. Uh, which ones have you done? Asana Rebel, I'm going to start with. It's actually Asana Rebel. No, hang on. What's an Australian accent? Asana, Asana, it's an Australian app. So the idea is that you do yoga to build up core strength and keep you fit. So it's like not using weights. And it's just a, a mobile app. It costs you 50 quid. For, what? Hear me out. For the whole year. I mean, that's cheaper than Netflix, but it's more expensive than a free yoga app. What do you get? Video tutorials, which vary in length from about five minutes to, I think the longest one I've done is about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. I can show you here. This is the app. So like one of one of them here, this is Dancer Flow. I haven't actually done Dancer Flow. Uh-huh. Um, and then you have Boot Camp, which is Intensity 2. And they give you different things that you can do. So you've got like, this, this will get me in shape. And I've used this quite a bit. You can do it in your lounge. Don't need a mat. Although I would recommend a mat, especially if you've got carpet, because I've got carpet burns. It's also quite hard to look at your phone whilst you're doing that. I mean, it's like its own yogic move, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> How do you manage to do that? No, that is the big problem with this app. It's a massive problem. So I tried several different setups and I kept having to move it. So if you're doing a downward dog, you have to move your phone and then you've got one hand up and then I tried to rest it on a chair in front yeah. of me. But then when you're doing another move, you can't see it. And then they're like, ah, oh, just lie on the floor and then just put your leg up like so this. You and you're like, do an Aussie accent. I know, I don't know what happened to it originally. Yeah. And and you put your leg up and then you think, but how am I putting my leg up? And you can't see. But I've tried another app called Fit. Uh-huh. They're cool though, right? So they're F-double-I-T. I've actually got a, a physical object here. Oh, you have, yes. Okay. Hand to you. So this is, I see. So it's like a USB stick at one end. No, it's like... Well, it's like a USB-C connection then, you nerd. And at the other end, <laughs> a thing that you wear around your... 
pulse. So I guess it's measuring your heartbeat and stuff, is it? It's one of them. Yeah, so Fit, it's an app with video instructions of various degrees of intensity. It's Jane Fonda's workout for the 21st century. Yeah, but I actually put Rosemary Conley. Do you remember her? My mum used to do that. Do you remember Rosemary Conley? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Motivator. Mr. Easy, Motivator. Doing nostalgic content. We could do this forever. But what they've done is they have gamified your fitness. Mm-hmm. So this tracker that you've got here, yeah. this thing that you thought was a USB stick is actually an HDMI cable that attaches to an iPhone. No, wait, it's important. Why? Because we, well, because we're talking about the annoying thing with your phone. You're like, oh, oh I can't see my phone. It goes on the telly. Plug it into the telly. Okay. And that makes a huge yes, difference. Yes, that makes a difference, yeah. But then this, this isn't just a heart rate monitor. This is, I'll sound like I'm on the shopping channel. This is. <laughs> Heart rate monitor, accelerometer, mm-hmm. and it connects to your phone via Bluetooth. And you wear it just around underneath your pecs. But what it does is when you're doing the exercise, there's a, there, depending on which exercise you're doing, by the way. Mm-hmm. So the cardio ones, they're on the BPM, there's a bit called the zone. And if you're not in the zone, then you need to work harder. That's the gamification. And you think about it, you think, oh, well, no, actually... I really wanted to stay in the zone. So mm. it makes you work harder. Mm. And I did want to do it. You also get a thing, because the accelerometer in there can measure your movement. So it can see how many reps you do of whatever thing they're asking you to do, burpees, jumping jacks or whatever. And it is that varied, is it? I mean, they have a wide variety of different disciplines that you can do. Well, yeah, they break it down. There's cardio, which is like, you know, the high intensity training stuff. There's strength training, which is when you sort of squat and all those kinds of things. Mm. And then there's rebalance. Is it better than going to the gym, though? I have a gym membership with a company called Anytime Gym, right? And the idea is is that you, you get a fob and you can go and you can go bib in any gym in the world. They've got loads. You're such a sucker for a fob. Love a fob. <laughs> I just checked. It also comes with an app, Anytime right. Gym. I've been a member for six months and I just checked and I have been, here you go, you can see. Yeah. Two visits, one on the 21st in Dorchester, 21st of September yeah. at 3.24 and one on the 19th of September at 3.26. I've been twice. Well, for those three days, though, you really pump some iron. £30 a month. Okay, so they're actually cheaper than um, sort of luxury private gyms, aren't they? Yeah, so they're supposed yes, to be a basic are. gym. They but are. you still end up spending £300 a year or something you're not using. But I chatted to someone at Fit about how this stuff works because they wanted to get me set up on this thing because they were worried that I wouldn't be able to work it out, yeah? And he was saying that a third of all gym memberships are never used. Oh, yeah. And their thing is, well... Lots of people get intimidated, can't be bothered. And by doing it at home, you'll use it more. I've already used this three times in the last, since we last spoke. So I'm more likely to use it at home. And yet I but, did but, like but using it at home. there's the distractions of being at home, aren't there? I mean, I know when you go to the gym, there's the distraction of getting a Starbucks and a muffin afterwards. Mm-hmm. But when you're at home, <laughs> you know, you've got the phone, you've got on-tap pornography, you've got your friends coming around. You know, there's all that stuff. Well, the first one that I used on Fit, because it plugs into your phone, the phone rang halfway through <laughs> and it completely stops it it just completely stops oh really That's yeah good, and then it? you're like oh so then i just couldn't be bothered to start again so um you would recommend this how much is it you can actually download it for free but you don't get the device for that so mm. if you want the device it'll cost you 15 pounds a month or 120 pounds a year which is 10 pounds a month so it's much cheaper than the gym okay well you've sort of succeeded in that challenge although i'm guessing what? well you haven't told four and a half hours on a sauna rebel you haven't i've done free workouts you look ha- at me i'm trim as you like <laughs> you haven't updated us on the trampoline which makes me assume that it's still under your bed gathering dust i've failed on the trampoline what is it that makes you not want to put the trampoline together it's in two separate boxes under my bed it's like the equivalent of putting together an ikea kitchen okay time to touch in with your mission to become christmas number one uh, last week you came up with the sort of 
somehow genius idea to get other podcasters involved to bolster sales of this thing when it comes out. Who have you spoken to since then? Which podcasters have we got on board? None. Well, you say none. I've got Helen Martin on board from Answer Me This already. Well done. I put it to them casually. See, you're using your gravitas. I was like, oh yeah, we're doing this thing on The Modern Man, can you just record a line? And she was like, it's a bit difficult actually because I've got throat surgery coming up. And I was like, go on! And she said yes. That's what we need. Also, we've had a text from um, the Alan Partridge podcast, Monkey Tennis. They want to do it. Aha! There we go. Potentially uh, two of the lines sang. So why haven't you got anybody on board then? Because we have to look for a record label first. So I've been chatting to quite a major record label and we ran into a bit of a snag. Because because it's a charity single that we want to release, they've said the cost of getting a lawyer and those kinds of things is going to cost more than the proceeds we would get for the charity. So to get all the lawyers and all the paperwork sorted and all of that kind well, of... Well, because they have to give the proceeds to something other than themselves. Yeah, basically, it wouldn't be worth their while, essentially. And also, they're saying it's a little bit late in the game. Who knew? A little bit late in the day. End of November, launching a Christmas single. Yeah, it's not like us to leave things late <laughs> in the day. But anyway, they introduced us to AWOL. That's Artists Without a Label, right? Which is a record label in itself. It is. For people that can't get signed. Yes, but they do have a procedure in place. They don't just sign anybody. You can't just go on there and say, oh, look, I've got a song, help me launch it. There is a, a, a selection process. And yeah, they've accepted us. Okay. So, so we, have, we now have a record label. And that's important because why? Why do you need a record label? Like if we're, if we're trying to circumnavigate the music industry and we're trying to get support for this song through podcast listeners, why do we need a record label at all? Because they'll give us access to all of the outlets that we need access to so like itunes spotify amazon because without them we're not going to get anywhere okay well done so when does the song come out we're planning on releasing on the 14th of december so if you remember me saying to be christmas number one we have to be number one by the 21st of december but the release date of the 14th (laughs) means that we've got a whole week where we can kind of just give it a real big push i see so that so on the 21st of december Mm -hmm. what are they called the record charts charts company the official charts company, right. Yeah. They, they tot up mm-hmm. the last seven days of sale. That's it. So to get the most sales, you need to come out exactly seven days before, so all the demand is there. Yeah. So we've actually got an episode coming out, haven't we, on Tuesday the 11th of December, two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Man Fans, after that, after that episode, the Friday after that, that's when the song's going to come out. Yes. Two weeks' time. Yes. You're, and I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking we've got two weeks to get everyone on board and you spent a week dicking around with record companies. It's not dicking about. It's sitting down. I had to wear a suit. I didn't have to wear a suit. How are we going to get this made in well, two weeks' time? We need all the help we can get, Ollie, frankly. A couple of things. So chap called Joseph, at Suddenly Joseph, on Twitter. He's, he's, he's tweeted in. He said, at the modern man, track is great. Loves the track. It is good. Because I wrote it. That's right. But the computerised instruments won't perform well in the charts. I think he's got a point here. Well, yeah, it was a demo, wasn't it, that we played out? And what we're looking for is listeners who are professional musicians that have the ability to record at home right? at quality. So, hold on. Has Philippe in Australia sent you a backing track that they can play along to? Yeah. So, if you're listening to this and you, like Joseph, mm-hmm. play an instrument and would like to play on the finished version, yes. get in touch with the show via the feedback form or get in touch with you on Twitter yep. and we'll send you the backing track so that you can send in your instrumentation. Is that right? That's right. The only, okay. one, the only one you can't is drums because I'm going to do that. Um, someone has been in touch, Ollie. This is yeah, this doesn't sound good. Um, Who is it? Phil Collins. Is, you can fuck off if it is. 
It's Tom Tom Meadows, you know, the Kylie's drummer. Oh, my God. Uh, we gave him a shout-out on the show a few weeks ago, and he got in touch and said, Hi, Ollie, as a thank you for your kind support, I'd like to play the drums on your Christmas single. So is that... What do I get? Fucking well, chimes. To, to give you your own words back at you, mm. it's for charity, Ollie. And I think I have to make the business decision that probably Kylie's drummer is better than you. You just said, I want the best line, I'm Bono. I am having... Okay, I, okay, okay, no, no. If Bono gets in touch and wants to be on our single, Bono can have my life. That's fine. That's but I'm the getting business a rap, decision. I'm getting a rap segment. I want to be able to rap then. If he's... A, I want to do something that's of percussive. Okay. And I definitely want a line. Let's try and find you something that's less culturally appropriating, but still plays to your talents. This is what always happens to writers. They write something and then they just get sidelined. You're a writer. You're yeah. a writer now, are you? People are saying on Twitter... Not only are you I saying, wrote it. Yeah. I get the whole joke. Yeah, you co-wrote it. The fact you're actually defining yourself as a writer. We can go back. We can pick apart my ramblings. Go through Phil's lyrics. My song. Okay, time for your challenge for next week's show, because you've not got enough going on writing to every podcaster in the world. Uh, It's from Man Fan Sunil, Mm -hmm. uh, who says, I'd like Ollie to try a vitamin drip. What? Yeah, it's um, a thing you put in your arms, like a drip, like hospital drip. <laughs> and it what? fills your bloodstream I'm, with vitamins. What? Come uh, on! No, it's it. Look, I wouldn't deliberately be putting you in any danger, Ollie. Yeah. Um, this is you sure the in thing, like Botox and stuff, and all the Hollywood stars doing it. And mm. it's it's about um, uh, rehydration. You'll feel excellently hydrated afterwards. Drink water. I'll just drink water. No. Why do no? I'll just have Barocca injected into your ass. We'll find out how that goes on next week's show. Coming up next, the fascinating world of face science. But first, here is our record of the week. It's by the new girl group 303. The track is called Whisper, and it's available right now. We be up on a late night talking about this and that. We just chit chat. Listen while I lay back If you ain't battling my line Boy, you still play on my mind You know I'm feeling your vibe It's like you're here with me all of the time I tell you what I want You never get me wrong Let's keep the conversation going all night long We could say a lot of things A lot of ways But every time I know You love me when You whisper to Now, you may remember back in the summer, our ambassador for St. Leonard's on Sea, Danny Mooney, uh, asked me if he could become the podcast's artist in residence. Uh, I asked him to see some of his work. I didn't want to bestow that honour on him blind. And he sent us an impressionistic portrait of the three of us, me, Ollie and Alex. And it was really good. Uh, You can see it again right now, by the way, as the artwork on this episode of the podcast. If you glance down at your phone right now, you should be able to see it. Uh, And you'll notice that we don't have faces in the picture he did of us. And that is because Danny has prosopagnosia, facial blindness. So he draws people by the way that they move. And after I mentioned that on the show, Manfan Sara got in touch. She says, Ollie, I once lived next door to a bona fide world expert 
on this neurological condition. Her name is Dr. Rachel Bennett, and she's got a number of fascinating stories to tell about her work in this field of psychology. She makes facey science, her words, easy to understand, and she's also good to know because she can tell you exactly why your Tinder profile isn't working for you. (laughs) If you ever need somebody bloody brilliant to interview, you could do a lot worse. Well, thank you, Sarah. Uh, As you know, we are pretty much always looking for someone bloody brilliant to interview. Uh, So here she is, Dr. Rachel Bennett, psychology lecturer at Brunel University. And I started by asking her how her interest in facial blindness began. I was studying law. I was determined to be a lawyer. And I took a couple of psychology courses on the way. And it turned out that, in fact, thinking about how we think was much more interesting to me. Um, And then I got this one lecture on how we recognise faces and it seemed so completely alien to me, this idea that we do something absolutely every day and we never think about it. And that really fascinated me. What particularly fascinated me was all the different ways that it can be broken. And would you have called yourself at that time a names person or a face person? Because that tends to be what people say, isn't it? They don't just say, I don't remember names. They say, well, I'm good with faces or I'm good with names as if they're mutually exclusive things. Did you have the experience of knowing that you knew someone but not knowing where from because you just didn't recognise them? Yes, in fact, um, we have a name for it. It's called the butcher on the bus phenomenon, creatively named because a psychologist one day couldn't recognise his butcher on the bus. I'm the kind of person who walks straight past individuals who I've met before, particularly problematic with students. But on the other hand, um, my partner at the time was absolutely brilliant with faces, never forgot someone, kept pointing, pointing out people that he'd been to primary school with. And so it was really interesting to me how we could be so very different. It's interesting to me that it's so based on context. Yeah. You know, the butcher on the bus, because you're expecting to see the butcher in the butcher shop. Exactly. Presumably, you see him in the butcher shop, you'd recognise him on the bus, you don't. That's exactly right, yeah. There is a huge variation in, in how memorable individuals are. Um, so the most obvious way is distinctiveness. Something sticks out about the person. Something's more than average, less than average, different from. Hmm. Um, and generally, those faces tend to be much, much easier to recognise. Even if we take away all that other information, all the context, all the clothes, everything else, if you've just got a face which is very non-average. It's much, much easier. Interestingly, though, on average, um, if you take faces that are moving close to average, they're more attractive. So do you want to be memorable or do you want to be hot (laughs) is is the question. Okay, so tell me about prosopagnosia. That's the one. Yep. By the end of this, my aim is to teach everyone that that word. Prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia, yes. What's the etymology of it? Uh, Greek. So prosop for faces Mm -hmm. and agnosia for not knowing. Uh, It was first talked about um, following the World Wars. Um, There was a researcher called Bodemer who noticed that people who'd been shot in very specific areas couldn't recognise faces anymore. But they were okay with other things. So they might still be able to recognise different objects and they could still have normal low-level vision. They could look at lines and dots just like the rest of us but it was really something specific about faces nowadays it's quite common to hear of people for example who've had encephalitis or who've been uh, deprived of oxygen for a while developing very specific problems with face recognition so most of my work is with people who have what we call developmental prosopagnosia so there isn't a history of any kind of brain damage there isn't 
a specific illness or anything that we can pinpoint it. Um, they've simply grown up and never developed that ability to recognise faces like the rest of us have. So what's a typical example of someone that you may suffers from this? At the moment, I'm working mostly with kids. So um, one of the most compelling examples and pretty typical is as a, a five-year-old boy. He's very intelligent, um, no problems with reading, no problems with schoolwork or anything like that, um, but he just cannot recognise the people around him. So at the end of every school day, he used to go to the gates and he would wait for someone in a dark coat with a maroon car because that was, in his mind, how he recognised his mum. Now, sometimes this person who he'd walk up to would have short blonde hair where his mother's was quite long brown. Sometimes this person would be quite old or a lot younger than his mum. He didn't pick up any of that information. He also had quite a lot of other um, difficulties at school. For example, um, for a while there, he was getting bullied. And his teachers used to say to him, well, can you tell me who, who, who it was that pushed you down? And he'd go, well, no, I don't know. So they used to punish him because they thought that he was making it up. Have you met his parents? Yes. And how is that for them, knowing that their own son doesn't recognise them? Um, I think that was less of a difficulty for them than just the frustration of not being able to get other people to understand. So they had grown up and they understood that he used different ways to identify them. Um, and he was quite good with voices, actually. Mm. He'd gotten really, really good when, when you spoke to him. So he did recognise, just not using the face, not using the typical information that we would normally gravitate towards. Um, but for them it was really, really difficult that people wouldn't understand that their son was different. We're not talking about a child, in this case with autism spectrum disorder, we're not talking about a child with dyslexia or any of the other differences that teachers are used to seeing. And it doesn't go in hand in hand with any of those things particularly? It can. Um, it's quite common for people with autism spectrum disorder to have prosopagnosia as well. But for people to understand that this is a, a standalone thing that exists by itself, we're still a little bit of a way from that. I think that's one of the hardest things for a lot of the people who come to see me that they can't convince other people that this is a real thing. So a lot of the people I work with, they just want to know whether it's true. What are the tests that you can run to determine whether it is true? Um, we have a lot of behavioural tests. So it, um, very straightforward things that we run on the computer. Learn these six individuals. Now, which of these people have you seen before? Or even simpler, here are two faces. Do they show the same person or not? So I think the best description that I've ever heard of prosopagnosia um, was a lady who came in to me and she said to me, have you ever tried to tell apart a flock of geese? And I said, no, that's not what I do. Um, and she got me to bring up a picture. And so I looked at them. I said, well, you know, that goose is clearly different to that goose. And she's like, yep, that's fine. And then about two minutes later, she showed me a picture on the screen again. And she said, so which goose was that? <laughs> and of course, that's just not something that we think about being able to do. I could tell they were geese when mm. you put them in front of me. I could tell them apart, but it's not something that sticks in the memory. Mm. And to me, that's the best description I can think of of prosopagnosia. Um, also, um, if anyone has identical twins in their life, the fact that if you've had a lot of exposure to them, you might find it really easy to tell them apart. But someone who's meeting them for the first time will just think, wow, these people are just the same. What's the most acute case that you've seen? Um, we were working with a teenager who had acquired prosopagnosia and she could not even recognise photos of herself. You would show her pictures of her family, of her, of her mum, her dad, herself, and she would occasionally look at a photo 
and she was trying really hard and she would say, oh, that's my sister. Hmm. And that was a photo of her. This is impossible to imagine getting through life that way. You know, in a strange sort of way, it seems like it would be even harder than actually being partially sighted because being blind, people understand. I'm not saying that's an easy life. Of course it isn't. But everyone understands what that disability is. Whereas, you know, I I appear to be, you know, fully functioning sight-wise, and yet I can't actually understand what I'm looking at half the time. It's a really hard thing to explain to anybody. The other thing that's quite important to understand about prosopagnosia is that most people with prosopagnosia only have a problem with identity. They'll still be able to look at a person and say, okay, that person's happy, that person's angry, that person's smiling at me. They might still be able to say, look, I think that's a middle-aged woman they can still get a lot of that information. So it's not that they don't understand faces at all. They can tell what that person is feeling. It's just that they don't know who the person is that's doing the feeling. It goes back to what you were saying, that people don't necessarily understand that because they might say, oh, but you you knew that I was upset with you. How could you not know that it was me? And I sort of understand the logic of that because even if you didn't recognise the person who was upset with you, you'd think if someone looked upset with you because you've just been treading mud through their carpet, then Mm. you'd put two and two together, that's the person who owns the house. You actually don't need to recognise them to get the contextual link. Yeah, and when there is a context, um, people do tend to find it much easier. Um, People with prosopagnosia describe it as becoming um, everyday detectives. (laughs) So they start putting all these links together. People will start talking to them in social events oh, you know, and picking up on what we were talking about at that meeting, blah, blah, blah. and they'll be clicking through their head going, okay, 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 they must have been at the PTA meeting, and that means that they were talking about this and then finally get to a name. What are the everyday frustrations that people with prosopagnosia have to put up with then that perhaps aren't as obvious as simply not recognising people they know? I mean, I'm thinking of things like following a narrative structure. I mean, watching telly must be impossible. Yeah, um, if you look at some of the um, self-report questionnaires that have been developed to try and identify people with prosopagnosia, one of the things that come up more than anything else is I really have trouble following television shows because when people change their costumes, when people change their hair, um, it's almost impossible to figure out. So The Simpsons is ideal. The Simpsons is great. <laughs> They're yeah. wearing the same clothes for That's 20 years. That's funny, actually, because um, the, the kind of main test that we use to identify people with prosopagnosia, the practice trial, is Bart Simpson, just right. for that reason. This is another way that they become these everyday detectives. They'll look at the way someone's dressed. They'll look at perhaps their gait. They'll look for things that people wear quite a lot. Mm. Um, I got into a lot of trouble with one of the people that I worked with because one time I saw him and I was wearing a wedding ring, and then the next time I saw him and I wasn't. And I got, I got, are you trying to trick me? I said, no, no, I'm not. I really, I'm not. Um, but his way of doing things is wedding rings because people don't take them off. They tend to be quite unusual. They tend to be quite distinctive. They're quite easy to see. So for him, that's, that's the ideal cue. And what can we learn about how the rest of us interact by studying the interactions of people with prosopagnosia? So when I look at a face and when you look at a face, we don't look at it in individual bits. We don't go eye, eye, nose, mouth. Okay, let's identify that mouth. Let's identify that nose. Instead, we take in information as a whole and we call that holistic processing. And what we find is that for a lot of people with prosopagnosia, they don't show as much or any holistic processing. So if we Um, turn a face upside down, which is a really good way of breaking holistic processing for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Most of the time for individuals with prosopagnosia, it won't have that much effect. They'll still 
be roughly the same in terms of their ability to identify. There's also that uncomfortable thing, isn't there, which people don't like to talk about, which is that people of different races and ethnicities seem to struggle in identifying to the same extent who's who than they do within their own ethnicity. You hear all the time Chinese people saying they can't tell white people on TV, white people saying that black guy because they can't remember which one it is. And like I say, it's uncomfortable. People don't like to address it, but it does seem to be easier for people to recognise people that look more like them. It very much is. So we call it the other race effect, the own race effect, the other ethnicity bias. There's millions of different names for it. But the general idea is that if we're not very experienced in recognising people or discriminating between people from a particular race, we're just not very good overall. However, the good news is it can be reversed. If you give people a little bit of training or just exposure to a whole group of individuals from the race that they're trying to learn how to discriminate, Mm. this other race effect tends to get much smaller or even disappear entirely. A really classic study that was done with infants actually looked at uh, the other race effect, but they did it with monkeys. Mm -hmm. And they found that when infants were really, really young, they were equally good at discriminating between human faces and monkey faces. But then over time, they got worse at the monkeys. And this basically suggests that when we're born, we're probably picking up any face that we can and then experience and constant exposure to particular types of face, particular races, particular species, then kind of tunes us in and says, okay, you need to focus on that. And we get worse at the other faces and better at the ones that we're exposed to. And are there people at the other extreme of the scale? Are there people who recognize everybody who never forget a face people say anecdotally they never forget a face but that can't really be true we are studying quite a few people who claim to never forget a face Um, we call these individuals super recognizers and we're starting to get quite a lot of research on what's going on in these um, individuals who have such an extremely good memory for people Um, what's particularly interesting is that we don't seem to be looking at people who are just really good at remembering everything So if we give um, super recognizers tests, for example, of car memory, they're about average, but face memory, they'll just be absolutely off the charts. We've had to redevelop a whole bunch of tests to try and get to the point where we can actually say how good these individuals are. What is a typical number of faces to hold in our brains? There was some research on this recently, and it suggested that it was in the thousands, but not maybe as high as you would think. Mm. Actually, it's probably between about five and 10,000 faces that most people hold in their brains. Um, that research hasn't been done with super recognisers just yet. I mean, do they say, I really do recognise the butcher on the bus? I recognise everybody on the bus? Yes. I know if I saw them 10 years ago on a bus, is that what they say? Yes. Um, so um, one instance that I know the person personally, he got basically accused of stalking someone because he went up to someone in the middle of a quad in a university and started talking to them about a meeting that they'd been at a year ago. Mm. That meeting was the only time they'd ever met. It was about half an hour long. There were about 15 people in the room. This person could immediately walk up and just continue their conversation. Other people who we've worked with, there was one who was a swimming coach when she was younger. About 10, 15 years later, she immediately recognised the children that she'd coached. Now, Mm. these kids have gone from being six to adolescents or adults, and she was still easily able to identify them. But for most people, they don't even realise a lot of the time, because... We don't think about our face recognition. But they, it would be happens. a great boon to work in security or something like that, wouldn't they? Yeah, and the police over the last few years were looking quite a lot at using super recognisers in their operations. So they even had a super recognizer unit at the Met there for a while. What we're working on at the moment is trying to figure out whether all super recognisers are the same. 
some of our research suggests, for example, that some super recognizers would be really good at doing matching tasks. So maybe holding up a photo and saying, is this the same person as that one? Whereas others might be really, really good at memory tasks. Mm. So just looking at a video and going, oh, that's the guy that we arrested two years ago. Um, Interestingly, though, they still get the other race effect. Hmm. So super recognizers still do perform a little bit worse with faces from races that they're not very familiar with. How good is AI now at facial recognition? AI is getting very good. The best humans still outperform AI, but only just. So I wouldn't be surprised if AI caught up within the next couple of years. The thing is, though, that when AI makes a mistake, you still get bounced back to a human. If you're in the security line at the airport, and I'm sure everyone's had this happen to them, and your passport doesn't recognise you, you go straight to a border patrol officer. So there's still it's still quite important to, to keep the humans in on the task. So you said at the beginning of this interview that you want by the end of it for more people to know the word. Prosopagnosia, there I said it. Yes, very um, good. <laughs> are you seeing evidence of this sort of greater awareness around us happening now? We are getting a lot better um, as a society. Um, so there's been a lot more interest in the media, um, but also a lot of pop culture references that are starting to come up and reference face blindness or prosopagnosia in some way or another. Oh, like what? There was a really lovely novel earlier this year um, about a teenager who has both prosopagnosia and also synesthesia, which is where you've got a bit of a mixing of the senses. So you might see colours when you hear noises and that kind of thing. As well as that, you saw in Spectre, I believe, they they tried to induce prosopagnosia in James Bond. That was their villainous plan. They drilled in the wrong spot, incidentally. Um, (laughs) So there, there is a lot more of this coming up. And I think every disorder, as you get more and more research and more acceptance within the academic fields, it starts to become better known and it starts to become more accepted and become part of the culture and we see that with a lot of different disorders Um, things like ADHD went from Mm. being completely questioned whether everyone existed to being quite a normal part of this course Um, people with dyslexia Doctor Who has a companion with dyspraxia for autism spectrum disorder there are entire shows based around characters and the challenges they face and people like to revise through history don't they as well and say ah Winston Churchill was suffering from depression and yeah. uh, you know whatever Abraham Lincoln was dyslexic or whatever the thing might be yeah um do you have any celebrity uh, sufferers yeah there are quite a few um Brad Pitt apparently has prosopagnosia no um if he ever wants to be tested I'm right here <laughs> the Stephen Fry is another one uh Sir Alan Sugar um, really? Apparently, yeah. There was a there was a documentary, and he, he even met a couple of the teenagers who. Wow. Heard it. Um, but I was thinking more of historical figures. Historical figures, not so much of a, a famous one to to everyone. But uh, there's a author called Oliver Sacks, and he was a very famous neurologist. He yeah. wrote um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Mm-hmm. Many people think that is the seminal description of prosopagnosia. It's not. Because mistaking a face for another object, that's a completely different disorder. That's object agnosia. Oliver Sacks didn't realise this because he himself had prosopagnosia. So he didn't realise that normally people would be recognising faces. And that's what people meant when they said face recognition. Okay, so he was the man who mistook the man who mistook his wife for a hat as a normal thing? Yeah, well, he thought that that was what they meant by recognition. Recognising that there was a face there. To him, that was face recognition. 
whereas for most of us it means a lot more than that. Dr. Rachel Bennett. And remember, if you live next door to someone interesting like Sarah did, uh, just let us know. Email us via the website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Click feedback. And who knows, I could be interviewing them on a future episode. Up next, Alex Fox exposes the truth about self-exposure. That's after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time for a quickie with Alex Fox. It is the Foxhole. Your sex questions answered. What have you been up to this week? Last week, we had a query from a listener about bathroom sex. And I tried a new product for myself. I'm trying not to sound too excited, but it was a big yes from me. The product I tried, which I got from Love Honey, uh, was a pair of suction cup waterproof bondage handcuffs. Right handcuffs that allow you to attach your wrists to the wall of, of, a, of a bathroom or of a shower cubicle mm-hmm. and then your partner should they wish could uh, use a detachable shower head to stimulate you with uh, or hook you up to some kind of waterproof sex toy uh, or just touch you incessantly in a manner which you've consented to and are indeed delighted by wow or, or just leave you there and then tend to you when they have their shower. Uh, no, don't do that. It's actually a really bad, dangerous idea to leave anyone in bondage on their own at all. Right. Time for our question of sex. It's from a gentleman who says, if you choose to use my question, please make up a name for me. Bertram. Great. He says, my query is about exhibitionism. I'm a man, I'm in my late 20s, and I have quite an exhibitionist streak. And weird parents who called you Bertram. (laughs) We've got a whole psychological profile for you now. Uh, But recently it's got a bit unhealthy. I like to show myself online talking about his willy isn't he yes on various exhibitionist sites like tumblr and the website temporarily exposed the idea of my pics being spread and seen gives a thrill and when i'm horny i don't even think about the risk but when i come down so to speak i get scared until now i've always been able to get the pictures removed from sites but the thing is i keep going further and further showing pictures with my face and even my name alex do you have any tips on how i can continue to expose myself but keep myself safe and should i actually seek help for my problem in air quotes before i go too far and ruin my life career or relationships so uh our listener here likes sharing risky dick pics it gets him off but is it going to get him in trouble let's first talk about the site temporarily.exposed have you heard of this i haven't no Um, it's actually not something that i'd explored until it came up in this queue it's a website that lets people who have exhibitionist tendencies share revealing photographs of themselves for a set period of time and that can be as short as one minute so you've got the thrill of just 
thinking in the next 60 seconds, is anyone going to see this? Am I going to get caught? Or up to one week. Now, uh, temporarily exposed have a number of what they say are security measures in place designed to try and uh, encourage people not to spread these photographs outside of this uh, supposed safe space of this site where folks who like to be exhibitionist show themselves and people who like to be voyeurs go and look um, they do that by um, putting the IP address of everybody viewing them on photographs so that if you take a screen grab for example and share that photograph it's clear that it came from you oh that's quite interesting well although I guess a bit of photoshop could smudge that out couldn't it yeah precisely anybody with an even minor knowledge of Photoshop could quite easily erase that IP address or crop it out. Uh, And also, I just don't think that that's going to stop a lot of folks who want to share that kind of material potentially maliciously. And also, I mean, it's interesting, he mentions Tumblr, doesn't he, as one of the places he goes to expose himself. Yeah. There's been a lot of controversy about the sex sites on Tumblr in that some of them appear to be user-generated, but you wonder, is this revenge porn? In other words, is this someone who sent a video or a picture to their partner never intending it to go on the internet and then that partner has uploaded it in the case of this website although clearly you're breaching the terms and conditions and you're breaching their trust they did themselves clearly upload because they found it thrilling to a website they knew lots of people were watching so some of that disquiet for people about am i breaching their confidence has evaporated, hasn't it? Because they think, well, they put themselves out there. Uh, And indeed, that's one of the worrying things about this. If you were somebody who wanted to identify someone as a target for blackmail, going to a site like Temporarily Exposed... It is surely rich pickings yeah. that could make you rich yeah. uh, if you had that kind of criminal mind. And it might as well be called I'm embarrassed about my exhibitionism.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and talking of the law, uh, I was thinking, well, in Bertram's case, he asks, is this going to get me into trouble at work? If somebody took one of those pictures and sent it to your boss, there's a chance that they could actually get done for revenge porn or something mm. similar if they if it was seen that they were sharing a picture that you had not intended to be uh, distributed in that manner, which was intimate, uh, and that they had malicious intent, then they could be prosecuted. But would the damage already have been done by that point if it was deemed inappropriate by your workplace? Also, Bertram doesn't say what he's actually doing in these pictures. It doesn't say what he's showing. Um, well, he said, in some of them, I've even started to show my face, which does sort of suggest that it's dick pics mostly, doesn't it? Yeah, but what type of dick pics? Are they extreme bondage? Has he got anything written on his torso? You know, is he into, if he's a particularly submissive person, he might be into shaming, that kind of thing. But if he hasn't, if it is just your sort of bog standard erect penis... Actually, maybe arguably, people have become so desensitised to those being on the internet that actually you wouldn't lose your job for that. I mean, if it's just someone's penis, so what is what a lot of people would feel now, I think. That is how I feel. And I think society does need to change the way they stigmatise people's sexuality. It makes my heart sink when people are shamed and uh, lose their jobs because they dare to have a sex life. I mean, there are arguable areas. Uh, There have been cases in the UK recently where people who work as teachers, for example, have been outed that they have a history of uh, being in pornography and they have lost their jobs because it was deemed in 
inappropriate for them to be teaching young people when they when those young people could go and Google them and see their tits or their their willies on the internet. Uh, that's something that Bertram should potentially bear in mind. When you when I'm talking about the law in this area, it is quite theoretical because there haven't been very many test cases and because there's so much uh, subjectivity here. But a possible scenario that could feasibly occur is that if Bertram puts a picture up with his name and his face that is explicit in nature and that reaches his workplace somehow, they could potentially interpret that as him having produced on purpose a pornographic image. If it is in his work contract that he is uh, has to represent his workplace and their brand uh, according to their values, then his workplace could try and argue that he's brought them into disrepute. So, to return to his question, how can he continue doing this? It gets him off, he enjoys it but not fall into those traps? Well, there are a few levels here. Uh, For a start, he says, how can I avoid this ruining my relationship? If his partner doesn't know that he's sharing explicit pictures of himself, then they could interpret that as a real red flag in their relationship and potentially even cheating. I went on some exposure blogs on Tumblr and I also went on Temporarily Exposed. There is a degree of interaction with strangers, particularly in the latter. Uh, There are people clicking, there are people making comments. Um, There's all sorts of folks on Temporarily Exposed. um, There was one picture of a gentleman who uh, had a banana in his mouth and another in his asshole. And I mean, that is one way to get your five a day. Uh, There's lots of people who are very submissive, who I think have interactions with professional doms and their doms have put them on Temporarily Exposed for five minutes as part of a consensual punishment. Uh, There are other people who I got the sense that uh, for them it was a very freeing thing to be in a space where it was okay to show their bodies. I thought a lot about the potential motivations of being on there and I think this is something that Bertram should do. I think he needs to identify what it is about this that turns him on because it's only by uh, keying into that that he will be able to get that thrill elsewhere. Is there a safe website you can use? Because there's always the risk of the screen grab, isn't there? I don't think there's any absolutely safe website. There are some sites that in a Snapchat style will notify you if someone has tried to take a screen grab or they'll have a method of trying to block that. However, that's completely scuppered when you think that someone can take a picture of a screen using a different device. They can always point their phone at their laptop job done and you will never know about it even though our listener here asking this question says that in the past he uh, thinks that he's managed to get his pictures down how certain of that is he you know different sites track and store information in different ways it's actually quite it can be quite hard to know with absolute certainty that you've removed something from the internet that you wish to that and that's getting harder and harder there's a really good book for anyone who's interested in this written by by um, a sex blogger called Violet Blue, who's also a tech specialist, called The Smart Girl's Guide to Privacy. Um, It was written in 2014, so it's a few years old now. But for anyone who is thinking about their online identity, particularly with regards to their sexuality, that's a good place to start in asking questions. And as I say, asking questions is the first thing our listener needs to do here uh, about his motivations. Why is he doing this? There are lots of clues in his letter that suggest that he really gets a thrill from the fear of it. Um, the, 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 the risk is a big element for him. Now, that in itself is a, a very, very common fetish 
and one which can be managed in safe ways. What concerns me about this particular listener is his taste and desire to uh, accelerate and exacerbate that risk to to make it even more scary to start adding his name to start adding his face I've yeah, spoken- so it sounds like he's never going to be fully sexually satisfied until it's on his LinkedIn basically isn't it yeah That's yeah I, I've known people who have these same kind of kinks who've even gone so far as to email a picture of this nature to their boss and then try and retrieve the email if you have the kind of uh, personality where you're chasing bigger and bigger risks then that is something that pot- potentially is worth um, exploring with a counsellor in case you get yourself into trouble in terms of indulging this fetish in a safe manner if you don't want to ruin your relationship I think the only way that you can really safeguard against this being a permanent threat that might come up at any time is to tell your partner. But of course, immediately by doing so, the thrill might be lost. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, there's no way to remove the risk that at some point your partner might rumble you and who knows how they will react. I don't know this listener's partner, but there is a chance that if he approaches it in a sensitive, compassionate way and says, look, I think this is something I'd really like to explore with you, uh, that they might be willing to do something like set him challenges to send her pictures and she can joke that she might show her mates or something like that. Uh, If she has any kind of inclination towards being dominant, then that is something that they might want to explore, but have no idea how open to that she might be. Another thing that might give him a similar degree of kind of exposure and that idea of risk is going to a fetish club maybe with his partner somewhere where you're allowed to be fully nude or where getting your genitals out is okay but where they can agree that uh, they'll role play a scenario where it's more risky it's a difficult one to solve though because I think the inherent thrill for this particular person is the danger and if you remove the danger you may well remove the kink entirely Uh, Alex if people have a question that they'd like to ask you about their sex lives what can they do they need to head to our website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback and you're also available and open via social media I am to a certain degree you're very welcome to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Fox that's Alex with one I uh, A-L-I-X-F-O-X but you're not inviting dick pics no and regrettably very clearly to Bertram (laughs) regrettably uh, I am not able to enter into one-on-one correspondence with people I've had a few DMs it's lovely to hear from listeners saying that they like the show Uh, unfortunately though uh, it's not practical or professional of me to enter into private conversation with anyone so sorry I can't do that if you want me to answer something it has to go via modern man but i love to hear from you otherwise and yeah no dick pics and with that we have very nearly reached the end of this week's modern man but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador it's lauren from chicago who says ollie i just wanted to say sorry i hadn't donated beer money sooner so you can tell that uh, lauren is english because she begins her email with an apology for giving us money Moving from the English countryside to Chicago, she continues, The modern man has been my saviour on daily commutes. If you don't have a ambassador for Chicago, I'd love to represent. Uh, well, Lauren, we do have a ambassador for Chicago. That's uh, Dave, Series 5, Episode 5. But I now pronounce you ambassador for exiled Brits in Chicago. Congratulations. If you'd like to buy us a beer to support the show or suggest yourself as a ambassador, follow the links 
on our website. Our theme is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.